Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we head to the meadows and woods of West Virginia to catch the buzz on beekeeping. Getting into my hives the first time, I, they always say that you could, they can smell fear. No, I was too excited for that. And it's been six years since Kentucky artist Lacey Hale designed her iconic No Hate in My Holler screen print. Appalachians are still telling her how much they identify with its message. Having something that they can um, get behind and say, look, you know, we're not all backward. We're not all the stereotypical, you know, he'll, you know, um, homophobic, racist, hillbillies. We also take a ride on the Cassini Railroad and explore some one-of-a-kind getaways in West Virginia. Uh, the company houses are great. They're the original structures. Of course, they've been fitted with modern amenities. It's a nice uh, experience to take a look back at the history of chaos, but yet be comfortable. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Solar Holler, building on West Virginia's proud history of powering the nation by bringing solar power to the coal fields. More at solarholler.com. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Today, we begin among the trees and stands of black locust and tulip poplars with this report from Folkways reporter Margaret Leaf, who checks in with the community of West Virginia beekeepers. In Summers County, West Virginia, Mark Lilly is inspecting his honey beehives. He's checking on his swarm's honey production. So this colony is doing really well building up for the spring. We're probably three weeks plus before the flow. The flow Mark is referring to is the honey. Honey from West Virginia is often tree honey. Bees collect nectar from flowering trees such as black locust and tulip poplar. And I think we could probably prove that the Appalachian area provides world-class honey. Mark's in his 60s and grew up in Raleigh County, West Virginia. He's been keeping bees for over 25 years. Recently, there's been an increase in new beekeepers in West Virginia. According to Shanda King, West Virginia state apiarist, beekeeping is on the rise, as is the number of colonies per beekeeper. Sarah Ann McClanahan of Charleston, West Virginia, is one of them. Getting into my hives the first time, I, they always say that you could, they can smell fear. No, I was too excited for that. Sarah Ann recently took over her aunt's hives. After lifting the top off one of the hives, she pumps a smoker to calm the agitated bees. We are going to force these guys to go down. Sarah Ann's had a lot of help learning to keep bees. She has a co-worker who has hives, and he's become her mentor. Mark also had a mentor early on. His grandfather was big into bees. He kept bees and hollowed out logs, he usually used gum trees, which decayed from the inside out, making them perfect for honeybee hives. It was a section of a log with a piece of wood or tin on top of it uh, and comb in there, and he would just take a big aluminum dish pan and a bread knife and cut out the top, which is where the honey was stored. Mark's grandfather kept bees for the honey. It brought the family together when he'd plunk the aluminum pan with honeycomb on the center of the table beside fresh biscuits. But beekeepers in West Virginia today are getting into beekeeping for more than the honey. And Mark should know. As the master beekeeper for the Appalachian Beekeeping Collective, Mark teaches free classes via Zoom to new beekeepers. That includes teaching how beekeepers today keep their swarms. Uh, a lot of information out uh, about Faroa mite, and although that's not going to be our entire class, Tonight, While Mark absorbed a lot about beekeeping by watching his grandfather, he discovered much of what he learned through his own research and by attending statewide conferences. He's now part of a tight-knit network of beekeepers around West Virginia. And so is Sarah Ann. Through social media, she's connected with beekeepers around the state. Facebook groups have been amazing. I've learned a lot about bees by going to the women, West Virginia Women Beekeepers Association retreat in July. The retreat Sarah Ann attends each summer is hosted by Phyllis Varian, who founded the Women Beekeepers of West Virginia. Phyllis noticed beekeeping in West Virginia was male-dominated. 
She started the retreat to give women hands-on experience with bees. She also created a Facebook page that the women used to help with their beekeeping quandaries. Sarah Ann is a big fan of the group. Some people have questions, and I'm just like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Let's see what everybody says. Sarah Ann is bonded with people from all walks of life through beekeeping. And the same is true for Mark in his work with the collective. The beautiful part of the collective is this great cross-section of society. And we've got young teens all the way up to more senior citizens, different ethnic backgrounds. I'd be comfortable in saying at least 50% of the collective members are, are ladies. And we all can gain something from hearing about other people's successes and, and their mistakes. We can learn from that, too. For both Sarah Ann and Mark, sharing their beekeeping knowledge also means teaching the next generation. Sarah Ann spends time in the bee yard with her nine-year-old son. His favorite part of the process? Enjoying the honey. My son is a peanut butter and honey sandwich eater every day. He eats probably a jar a month, and I can't hardly keep it in stock. And Mark spends evenings working the bees with his kids and grandkids. He hopes they'll share his admiration for the bees and the way they work together. This hive is their community, and they all want to see it prosper. And that's for the community or the hive uh, to be healthy, uh, to produce everything it needs uh, food-wise, protect each other. And I think we could all learn to get along like honeybees. It seems that beekeepers in West Virginia have as much to learn from honeybees as they do each other. For Inside Appalachia... This is Margaret McLeod Leaf in Summers County, West Virginia. To see photos of the colorful hives of West Virginia beekeepers, visit wvpublic.org. That story is part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. Speaking of colorful, in Pound, Virginia, near the Kentucky border, there's a mural depicting an old woman smoking a pipe and holding a baby wrapped in a big, bright quilt. The mural honors Nancy Mullen Shores, beloved local midwife, as part of a growing body of work by artist Lacey Hale, who's been painting murals and turning out viral images from eastern Kentucky for years, including No Hate in Mahaler, a screen print she designed in 2017 in response to a Nazi rally. But over the last six years, that image keeps coming back on social media, on billboards. I wanted to talk with Lacey about that. But first... I asked her about that mural of Nancy Mullen Shores. We had several community meetings to see what the projects were going to be about. And this Granny Shores kept coming up. Granny Shores, Granny Shores. When talking about Granny Shores, I found out that she was a midwife in the very early days of Pound who delivered over a thousand babies. So she was born in 1867 and she passed away in 1945. Her husband was a doctor, and she went apparently to some of his appointments with him, and that's how she kind of got into becoming a midwife. She boasted that she never lost a mother, and she lost very few babies. So so basically everybody early on in Pound, Virginia, was delivered by this woman, this Granny Shores. So she, like, literally birthed the town in some ways. <laughs> basically, yeah. Like, she, she's the mother of, of Pound. <laughs> yes. I also forgot to mention that, you know, for the the folks that may not click over and see the picture of the mural, that she is smoking a pipe and and she's holding a baby. But apparently she was rarely without her pipe. That is something that, you know, I heard over and over again that she always had a pipe in her mouth. Yeah, she was she was quite quite the woman, apparently. (laughs) What a woman. What a woman. That's incredible. Yeah. This Granny Shores mural. You know, you see her, but then a lot of it's dominated by this very prominent quilt. Can you tell me more about that? Whenever I do a piece of public art, if I'm working with the community, I want the community to be involved. I cut all these like nine by nine pieces of polytab, which is basically parachute material. And I broke those down into a nine square quilt. And we had a community painting day. We had paint markers and paint pens, and we let people from the community come, and um, they got to sit down and fill out the quilt any way they wanted to. It was kind of like a modern-day quilting bee, I guess, you know, because they could sit there with their own little quilt square and decide how they wanted to make it. And then so there was younger people. I think we had a 
kid there that was probably four or five that did one and it was like more like a Jackson Pollock splatter type like he was just like you know slinging these this paint all over his quilt square and then you know there was um a younger person who did kind of an abstract I mean it was really cool to see what the community members came up with so there yeah so so some of the quilt squares um were more traditional there was one that had um like strawberries drawn and and the different squares there was one that was just very muted tones each each square had a different color of a muted tone there was some that were like wave it was almost like an 80s like (laughs) waves of neon vibrant like you know colors that didn't really stay within the squares I knew once they were installed on the mural itself and the mural was put up that all of these pieces, even though they were very different, would make a cohesive quilt. (laughs) And just like a community, you know, we're all different and we can work together and make this piece that is vibrant and colorful. I wanted to ask you just real quick about No Hate My Holler. It's like an evergreen, right? That that design is going to be... It's going to be mentioned in the first couple of paragraphs of your obituary, probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> I mean, you, I think you will top yourself. I mean, I mean that sounds morbid the way I'm phrasing it. Um, oh, no, no, but where no. you and I are at the age where you start to like have things, you start to count your life starts to be defined a little bit. Um, That's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> how did you first come up with that design? Um, so in 2017, um, I was actually working with Appalachian Media Institute um, at Apple Shop here in Wattsburg, and um, we were working with youth and we got word that a group of neo-Nazis were coming to um, recruit in Pikeville, which is about an hour from here. And so one of the um, youths suggested that we have a art and response day, which I thought was awesome. You know, so we decided to do that. And the night beforehand, this phrase just popped into my head, no hate in my holler. And so I do a lot of printmaking. I do a lot of block printing. And so the next day, you know, we had the art and response and that's, I just sat down and sketched it out and, you know, cut a block and carved it and printed it. And no hate in my holler was born, posted it on my Facebook and um, it kind of, you know, blew up. So people, people really um, took to it and identified with it. And um, yeah, like you said, it's kind of <laughs> for the last five years, it's, it, it just keeps cycling and, and growing. And, and it's not always been for the best reasons. I mean, you know, sometimes when something horrible happens, there's a influx of desire for more of the T-shirts and stuff like that. But, you know, I always donate. 25, at least 25% of the proceeds from any of the merch that I sell with No Hate My Holler to nonprofits working toward equality in the regions. I think it's like the best of art in that it's taken on its own life once you kind of set it free in the world. What stories have people shared with you about it? And what kind of stories have come back and left an impression on you? You know, I've had I've had so many people reach out to me and, and um Sorry, I might get a little <laughs> teary-eyed because it's really um, just some of the the things that people have said that um, how important this has been to them. Either growing up here, being from here, living here, and having something that they can um, get behind and say, "Look, you know, we're not all backward. We're not all." the stereotypical, you know, he'll, you know, um, homophobic, racist, hillbillies, you know, I have a friend who, um, she messaged me the other day and, and she was like, you know, as a lesbian who has a, an African-American daughter, you know, I, I appreciate this so much. And, um, you know, that means a lot <laughs> that I can do something for people around here. You know, that really means a lot. So this design's five years old mm-hmm. now. What do you think it means today? Hopefully now we're at a point where this does not need to be said anymore and there's always something new that happens that, okay, so, you know, this does need to be said again or reiterated in some way. No, Hate Mahal is probably the piece of artwork that I've made that I'm most proud of. And it probably, you know, if you want to know something about me, look at that piece and that should tell you all that you need to know. Wow. Yeah. What else did you want to say? I think that's it. I'm going to start crying again. <laughs> Lacey Hale, thank you so much for speaking with us on Inside Appalachia. 
Thank you. <laughs> That's Lacey Hale, Eastern Kentucky artist. You can see more of her work on LaceyHale.com or check out her Granny Shores mural and No Hate and Mahaler print on our website, wvpublic.org. Appalachia is full of odd, offbeat, and cool places to rest for the night. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Randy Yoey and his wife Vicki like to get out, travel, and explore unusual places to stay. Randy brought back a story from one of their trips. Between shuffling coal into the locomotive firebox or checking the water level to get up steam, Cass Railroad fireman Justin Gay says he enjoys his job uh, most of the time. You get to meet people from all around the world. Uh, you got people from different countries, different states, neighboring states. Then you got times where it's difficult where the coal don't burn too hot or it ain't. That's a cue to get back to work. The all-wheel drive Shea locomotive was designed for the roughest mountain duty under the worst possible conditions. The antique locomotives that tourists ride at the Cass Scenic Railroad State Park are among the few remaining anywhere. Gay says in its heyday a century ago, this railroad didn't stop and this lumber town was busy. This line here was the main line that went up the mountain. The track beside of us was the CNO, which went up to Durban, and then Durban connected into western Maryland. They did a whole lot. They clear-cutted that whole mountain. That's my rocking chair on the front porch. No lodge, cabins, or tent campground at a state park highlighted by a grand old train. My wife Vicki and I crossed one off our bucket list by staying in one of the 20 or so refurbished Cass Company houses, built in the early 1900s for the workers at the lumber mill and the machine shop. Uh, the company houses are great. They're, they're the original structures. Of course, they've been fitted with modern amenities, shower, heat, air conditioning. But it's, it's just uh, it's a nice uh, experience to take a look back at the history of Cass, but yet be comfortable. You can do anything offered there in the community, the trail, biking, take a ride on the railroad, or you can just sit on the porch and relax and wave at your neighbors. My wife and I like hotels just fine, but we also enjoy staying in creative places that offer a new experience. We stayed in um, a treehouse in the Virgin Islands, um, a wigwam off Route 66, a castaway caboose in West Virginia. Really wonderful experience. That's just to name a few. West Virginia Tourism Secretary Chelsea Ruby says the state is getting into the alternative camping and glamping game. Ruby says tenter campsites sprouting up in state parks put visitors in the heart of nature. A short hike is required to access these campsites. Many are surrounded by spectacular views. Tenter sites come equipped with a preset canvas tent on its own wooden deck platform, a queen-sized memory foam mattress, side tables, a propane tent heater, picnic table, fire ring, solar shower, and more. Ruby says advertising West Virginia's alternative lodgings in national tourism publications is drawing travelers to the mountain state. Last month, it was one of our top performing ads. We had an ad um, that featured a treehouse cabin and one that featured the fire tower. Um, and both of those were among the top and in, in most clicked on ads just because people are interested in these new types of places you can stay. Our most recent glamping stay was at a farm and forest setting near Alderson aptly named wvglampingdomes.com. Vicki found it by Googling West Virginia glamping. Yeah, it was nice. Uh, it was beside a stream. Um, you could hear all the sounds of nature, and uh, but yet, you know, you were close by to the amenities most people want. Um, shower facility, kitchen, running water, even a hot tub. Uh, very interesting. Uh, it was open partially uh, to the outside so you could see the night sky, the trees, the woods. There's a 
river running right through the middle of it. It sits in two counties and there's a walking bridge that's reminiscent of one of the bridges you might find in England or Paris. Tim and Angela Luce left their city jobs behind to establish West Virginia GlampingDomes.com in Greenbrier County. Tim says it was the pandemic that actually helped him gain his tourism niche. Rural destinations like ours were up about 300%. And so that showed me there was a demand from the consumer base for something like this. And so we opened and we booked up an entire year's worth of reservations in a week wow. for our first dome. And wow. so we rolled all of that, those reservations as cash flow into building the, the next ones. We wanted to focus on a connection with nature. So the giant window facing the stream, when you're stream front, we also have another dome we're building right now that's going to be a mountain view with a huge panoramic view. And then a thing that our guests really love is the skylight. From a railroad company house to a Caribbean tree house, from a not-so-rustic tent to a hot tub enhanced clamping dome. Finding lodging on part or all of any trip seems only limited these days by imagination and your sense of adventure. Thorny Mountain Fire Tower, That's I'm waiting on that. We are on the waiting list and uh, hope to do that soon. And I plan to join her. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Randy Yoey. Coming up, we revisit a story about one of Western Virginia's newest residents, the armadillo. So I, I was able to verify this particular animal in Buchanan County and the damage that was going on, and I actually attempted to try to capture the animal. In theory, they're fairly easy to capture. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply. A lot of times when we talk about populations of animals, it's in the context of disappearance. A species becomes endangered, or sometimes even extinct. But today we're talking about an animal that's emerging in Appalachia, the armadillo. That's right, the armored mammal more associated with the Deep South and Texas. Armadillos have been moving north for decades. In the last couple of years, they've been spotted here in the mountains of Western Virginia. Seth Thompson is a biologist with the Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources, and he was the officer who took the first reports of armadillos here. I asked him how he reacted when he got that first call. I think of armadillos as Florida, South Georgia, Texas, places further to the south. So when I first heard of armadillos in southwest Virginia, I was quite shocked and surprised. We here in Virginia, we have a, what's called the Virginia Wildlife Conflict Helpline. And that's basically like a, a number that we encourage people to call if they are experiencing a conflict or a problem with wildlife. And I, I, one day I got an email that the, the title of the email was Armadillo in Buchanan County, Virginia. <laughs> and there was, a, there was a, a picture of the animal and some of the damage that it had done to, it, to this lady's yard. And so I was still a little skeptical because we get pictures that uh, purport to show a, a mountain lion in southwest Virginia, but then there's sagebrush and ponderosa pine trees in the background of the picture. But the more I dug and the more I read the, the email chain and, and information, it, it seemed legit. I ended up following up and calling the lady who was reporting this and followed up and sure enough was able to verify in the field that yes, indeed, this was an armadillo. So what happened next? So I, I was able to verify this particular animal in Buchanan County and the damage that was going on. And I actually attempted to try to capture the animal. In theory, they're fairly easy to capture, but I, I failed to do so. I've not dealt with armadillos and basically to abate the damage, to, to remove the damage source because it was quite severe. 
Um, but I, I was unable to capture the animal and a couple days went by and she didn't, she didn't see it anymore. It, it basically disappeared. We don't know what happened to that animal. But then a few weeks later, we got some other reports of other animals about 12 miles as the crow flies or so in Russell County, Virginia. And that was an animal that was actually killed by a gentleman's dogs that they, they had cornered and found this animal and, and killed it. And it was an adult male. Uh, that that specimen actually is has been cleaned and is now in the Virginia Natural History Museum. And we had another report uh, about three miles from there of possibly two animals. And those uh, one of the animals was actually actually captured in a live trap uh, and it, it died actually in the trap. And then there was a second uh, another yet another animal that was they had uh, trail camera pictures of to verify. So we, we've had a number of these sporadic reports that we could verify uh, in the field, either with a carcass or with credible trail cameras or photos. And I understand there was a sighting earlier this year as well. There have been. There's There's been a number of, of either roadkill or verified photos or so on since then. Uh, but last September, we had an animal on a, on a trail camera uh, in Wise County. And then this spring, about two miles as the crow flies from that trail camera picture, we had an animal turn up dead uh, roadkill. And we presume that that's probably the same animal. We've not had any other reports. Uh, and given the, the distance, we figure that's probably the same animal. It's just interesting. All the animals that we've been either we've been able to verify, which is to say a, a carcass in hand, have all been males. So n nothing uh, at this point to suggest that we have a breeding, you know, resident population. If we had females that were reproducing, then I'd say, OK, we, we are Virginia is now occupied by armadillos. But at this point, it's kind of more of like an occurrence uh, where we have these random males that are showing up. But we don't have any evidence yet that we have a breeding population. That was biologist Seth Thompson. He mentioned armadillo specimens he sent to the Virginia Museum of Natural History in Martinsville. Nancy Moncrief is a scientist there. I met her at the museum to talk more about these armadillos. We have the first documented specimens, physical evidence of armadillos in Virginia um, here on the table in front of us. We have the complete skeletons of these animals and the, the, outer, the hard outer shell of the animals we saved the uh, heart, liver, kidney organs of these animals, and they're in a freezer at minus 80 degrees Celsius, uh, cryopreserved for future genetic studies or a whole range of any other studies where, where you would need uh, living tissue, essentially living tissue, to be able to um, study ecology by looking at maybe stable, stable isotopes or um, some other aspect of the animal's biology. And that's what museums do. We have stuff. We properly store it. We archive it. We make sure the information that's associated with the specimen is cr as correct as we can make it. And then future generations will be able to come back, look at the physical evidence, sometimes using technology we don't even have right now, um, and get answers out of these specimens. Given that elements associated with climate change, whether it's high rainfall and flooding, milder winters, hotter summers, and confirmed sightings, is it a fair assumption to think that armadillo populations are moving north into Appalachia? Uh, into Appalachia and also into Virginia. They were first reported in the mid-1800s down in South Texas in the lower Rio Grande Valley. Their population started building up and expanding northward so that by the mid-1930s they had already made it to east of the Mississippi River. Simultaneously, in the, um, the mid-1920s and 1930s, we had two incidents where armadillos were released in eastern Florida. One was um, an intentional release from a personal zoo, 
and another one was an accidental release from a circus truck. In the mid-1940s in southern Alabama, somebody intentionally released nine banded armadillos. By 2013, armadillos had expanded all the way up into Illinois, Indiana, western Kentucky, western Tennessee, all the way into North Georgia, and up into South Carolina. By 2019 and 2020, um, there's shading in lots of counties in North Carolina and eastern Kentucky and eastern Tennessee. We think they're coming from eastern Tennessee up the Upper Clinch and the Holston looking for food and expanding northward. So far, we don't have evidence of reproduction in Virginia, so they aren't, uh, we don't consider them to be established or well-established yet, but um, it's highly likely that uh, a pregnant female will be moving north at some point, and then we'll have established populations in Virginia. So we've had sightings in the last, this year and last, in southwestern Virginia and eastern Kentucky, not to mention, you know, Tennessee, North Carolina, Alabama, and points on. No sightings in West Virginia yet. When do you think that might happen? No idea. Nothing is impossible, I suppose. It's possible that animals may, become, may come in from Virginia up into West Virginia at some point. That was Nancy Moncrief of the Virginia Museum of Natural History. Before that, we heard from Seth Thompson of the Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources. They spoke with me about recent armadillo sightings in southwestern Virginia and how those animals might have gotten here. We've posted photos of the armadillos that were spotted in Virginia on our website, wvpublic.org. The armadillo is an example of how animals migrate over time. This next story is about human migration. After World War II... Many people left Appalachia for factory jobs elsewhere, in North Carolina, Michigan, Ohio, and other places. Those years are hardly the only example of Appalachian migration, though. After the Civil War, droves of Appalachian workers went south. Some of them moved to a mill town in the middle of Atlanta, eventually called Cabbage Town. They took jobs at the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill. A century and a half later, Cabbage Town is still home to urban Appalachian culture and traditions. Jess Mador has this story. The smokestacks of the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill still tower over Cabbage Town. The 19th century district is famous for its narrow streets of Victorian homes, small cottages, and shotgun houses. It was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1976. Carol. I'm fine, thank you. I'm wrong. 83-year-old Ronald Edwards has lived in Cabbage Town his entire life. His small white house with a wide front porch sits a few blocks from the mill. I was born in 1938 on Powell Street, and I worked in the cotton mill. Edwards' father and brother also worked at the mill. So did all of their neighbors. At its height, the complex employed nearly 3,000 people, turning raw cotton into bags for flour, grains, and other goods. Edwards worked in the fabric inspection department. What I'd do is run, uh, run the cloth through a winder and got all the bad defects out of it, make sure all the defects was out of it, you know. The work was physically exhausting. The hours were long and the pay was low. But Edward says neighbors helped each other get by. They shared conversation, food, and music. Rocking in his creaky chair, he remembers Cabbage Town as a great place to grow up. We would play hide-and-go-seek, horseshoes, basketball. We'd be playing touch football, you know, in the summertime. And maybe a neighbor come by and say, Who's winning the game? Mom would be cooking breakfast or something, and a neighbor would come by and, and visit for two hours or more and just sit and visit and talk. And people don't do that anymore. The neighborhood's small-town feel thrived in part because of Cabbage Town's relative isolation. It's sandwiched along railroad tracks and the massive mill that covered several city blocks. 
Today, Edwards uses a cane. He has trouble getting around. He loves to sit by his living room window or out on the porch and chat with whoever walks by. Everybody in the neighborhood knows him. It's really cool. Edward's son, Ronnie, sits near his dad in the living room. Family photos and mementos decorate every wall. The magic thing, I think, about Cabbage Town is that you're instantaneously family. Like, I have never felt it anywhere else. That spirit of community faded for a while after the mill began shutting down in the late 70s. With the jobs leaving, some mill families moved away too. The area quickly declined. Drugs, prostitution, and violence took hold. To try and keep the peace, Ronnie says some longtime residents started an informal neighborhood watch group. Sometimes it was people out walking around. One of the members is named Myra, and she liked to power walk. So we would all power walk. Just being out in the community and, and showing, hey, we're not going to hide from this. Activists opened a community center for laid-off workers. There were after-school programs. And when gentrification began in the 80s, activists battled with real estate speculators, developers, and slumlords. They lobbied to protect what made Cabbage Town's arts, culture, and industrial heritage so unique. It's a mission that continues to this day. My name is Jacob Elsis, and I am the great-great-grandson of the founder of Fulton Bag and Cotton Mills, whose name was also Jacob Elsis. His great-great-grandfather was a German-speaking Jewish immigrant and Union Army veteran who came to America at the age of 18. He started as a street peddler and ended up in the textile business. Soon, the Elsis Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill grew into one of the biggest in the South. Its industrial output helped rebuild Atlanta after the Civil War. While Cabbage Town was more ethnically diverse than some outsiders assumed, Elsa says its dominant white Appalachian culture put the name Cabbage Town on the map. It was a derogatory name given to it by people on the outside. Surely they're a bunch of people who eat nothing but cabbage, the poor mill workers. Even though there were certainly a lot of inhabitants who never wanted to call it Cabbage Town, eventually it became a badge of honor. Elsis grew up in Atlanta and moved out of state for 20 years. He says coming back to Cabbage Town about a decade ago and seeing the impacts of gentrification ignited his passion for sharing its stories. I made it my second half of my life's objective to come back into the neighborhood and try to work towards putting together an art and history center that would tell the story of the mill town, of the people who used to be part of this mill town who had been displaced. By then, the long, vacant, deteriorating Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill complex had been preserved. Its buildings were redeveloped into apartment lofts and condos. Elsus moved in, settling on the spot where his namesake opened the mill almost 150 years before. I was always aware that my family had built this factory and subsequently a little mill town next to it. He'd inherited a treasure trove of mill-related artifacts and photos. And after he met his wife, Nina, whose background is in art history and research, they worked together on the idea. In 2018, they opened their nonprofit storefront museum. They called it Patchworks Art and History Center, named after an iconic neighborhood social and educational organization launched in 1971. That was called the Patch, and that's kind of what compelled us to call our own history center the Patchworks. When the pandemic started, Patchworks closed to the public, but the couple's historic preservation and Cabbage Town advocacy work continues. Elsa says ever-skyrocketing housing prices and years of gentrification have left their scars on the neighborhood. They're working to foster more understanding between old-timers and newcomers. We want to try to be a bridge between new Cabbage Town to old Cabbage Town because a lot of the people who left feeling unwelcomed here, we want them to come back and participate. I know the cultures are very different now, you know, especially when it comes to, you know, economics. But we're all into this neighborhood together, and we should appreciate that and appreciate each other because of it. 
Every year in early November, longtime residents, newcomers, and descendants of the original Mill families gather in the neighborhood to celebrate Cabbage Town's Appalachian heritage with the Chomp and Stomp Arts, Food, and Traditional and Bluegrass Music Festival. The festival's been running for almost 20 years now as a benefit for Cabbage Town's public spaces and parks. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Jess Mador. For more about the Chomp and Stomp Festival, visit Inside Appalachia at wvpublic.org. The Conesville Coal-Fired Power Plant was the backbone of the eastern Ohio town of Conesville. That was until 2020, early on in the COVID pandemic, when the power plant closed and was demolished. Last month, the community gathered for a memorial to what was lost. Julie Grant brings us this story from the Allegheny Front. Eric Skelly and his granddaughter are sitting in a courtyard in downtown Coshocton waiting for Calling Hours, a theater production about the power plant, to start. Skelly worked there for 42 years. I graduated high school, didn't think college was for me. There was opportunities at a couple of facilities here. Um, and I chose to go to the power plant because I thought it was most interesting. So he started working at the plant where they burned coal to make electricity. Fired boilers, made steam, turned turbines, made electricity. I mean, that's all I ever did, you know, for my whole life. Skelly turns his attention up to the performance, a lone speaker standing in the spotlight. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming this evening for the calling hours of AEP Conesville. Calling hours, like when people show up at a wake for a person who's died. And actually, this performance was written as a series of eulogies from different people who cared for the plants. One, read by local actor Denny Blanford, was taken from interviews of plant supervisors, including Skelly. I started on the floor and I worked my way up into management. No matter what I was doing, there wasn't a day when I walked into the heat and noise that it didn't feel right. At our peak, we put out 2,000 megawatts. That's electricity for 2 million homes. That's a lot of lights. It was kind of a theatrical documentary and was initiated by Ohio State University. Jeffrey Jaquette, associate professor of rural sociology, says the closure was coming for years, but also happened suddenly when COVID hit. Well, there was no formal goodbyes. Everyone was sort of on lockdown, and then the plant just sort of stopped operating. There was no send-off. Researchers interviewed some 50 people, miners, power plant workers, and residents about the energy transition in Coshocton and elsewhere. During that process, they met Ann Cornell, artistic director at the Pomerine Center for the Arts in Coshocton, who used those interviews to write calling hours. It's giving a voice to the people that these were their lives, you know, and that way of life is, is gone. Like environmentally, we need to be changing, obviously. It's just a very hard transition. There was much gratitude expressed for the good-paying jobs, but it was deeper than that for some who worked there, as conveyed in the eulogy by a union worker played by Ernie Galajda. Brotherhood was a big part of it. I think it's been the hardest thing for me to transition from. We're all friends, close-knit. We hung together. We raised our kids together. We went to ball games together spent Christmases together. You know, we did everything. In late 2021, much of the plant structure was demolished to make way for a new industrial park there. But the meaning of the place carries on for many people, as portrayed by actor Scott Thompson. Something's going to happen good out of this, provided people want to see good out of it. I suggest that we have something where we can go and talk, even if it's just a few guys. I think For a lot of us, that would go a long way towards helping us move forward. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Julie Grant. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on regional environmental news. Southeastern Ohio has become a wellspring of regional writing about Appalachia, including poetry. Last year, Ohio poet Sarah Moore Wagner released Hillbilly Madonna. It's a book of poetry that centers women's experiences in Appalachia. Bill Lynch spoke with Wagner. First off, the the title of the book, you know, Hillbilly Madonna. So why that particular title? Well, 
it was the title of a poem first, which was one of the first poems that I wrote for this manuscript. And um, it was basically the poem is about, you know, being a little girl and looking up at the sky and seeing kind of the fireflies. It was about then, you know, in the poem, the narrative of the poem, the fathers come and take the girls out of the field where they're kind of surrounded by nature. And they come to this realization that someday they're going to be mothers, the overwhelming pressure of that, perhaps. And so I thought that that kind of encapsulated the collection as a whole, because I mean, when we think about women in particular, there's that dichotomy of being either you know, the holy Madonna or the the degenerate, broken Mary Magdalene type figure. And this book is about women. It's about opioids. It's about generational trauma. And what I really wanted to do is to illustrate that people can be broken and still be holy and pure. And, you know, that there it's not that sort of strong um, opposite Thing that's often put on women in particular. Tell me a little about uh, where you came from and even how you got to this book. I was actually born in Columbus, but my parents are from um, Parkersburg, West Virginia and Jackson, Ohio area. And they both relocated in their teens, which is when they got pregnant with me. And so I, my mother, she when she was 14, um, her mo- she was involved in a big crime that like marked Parkersburg of her mother and grandmother being murdered. Um, and she was the one to kind of run from that and escape. And then a couple years later, I was born. To me, I've always lived with this overhanging shadow of trauma and of women kind of surviving and not surviving. When I wanted to write a book about my childhood, my parents also divorced when I was really young, like, um, too. And so I wanted to write about my mother and father's different landscapes that I come from and the 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 idea of coming from the hills and that that my father often went back to. So I would spend summers with my father and I'd be he loved Logan, Ohio and Tar, Tar Hollow State Park is where we spent a lot of our time. And so I felt kind of pulled between these two different worlds. The book came from me wanting to explore my childhood but then also thinking about the ways in which people everyone who is from Ohio or West Virginia or anywhere really knows people who've fallen into opioid addiction and have lost children and their lives. So I wanted to explore that with women in particular, because that's something that's close to me too. Your poems in this book cover a lot of ground, childhood, family, addiction, trauma, place. Where do you start with with this kind of collection? I mean, how does something like this kind of come together? Where does it begin? Place was so important to me in this because I felt like landscape is so tied to our identity. And there are a lot of writers that explore that, how connected to your body, the, the place that you are familiar with are. And so I would go to the places of my childhood. So I spent a lot of time in Jackson and in Tar Hollow and in uh, the places that I spent a lot of time in my childhood trying to explain and make the, the landscape part come to life in this book, because I think you can't really understand a person without understanding the places that they come from or spring from. The opioid epidemic would now also be called the uh, the overdose epidemic now mm-hmm. um was that an early piece to, to this or was it something that kind of evolved as you were writing about your childhood i think it evolved because for me there came a moment where i started thinking about in particular the girls that i grew up with family members and really close friends and how having just that person. And for me, it was my mom that was able to kind of pull me out, made all the difference for me because we started the exact same, you know, these like soul friends and sisters. And we also, I graduated from high school in 2000, kind of like the the time that opioids were everywhere. And I did a lot of things, you know, I, I was able to escape all of that because I had my mother who time and again would set me back on a path and say, this is where you're going. Just seeing how often addiction is made to be some kind of moral failing 
especially with women, was really upsetting to me. Um, And I wanted to provide a, a portrait of this is who I am. This is how I grew up. And this is what I've seen happen. And none of these women are evil, degenerate women who who hate their children and lives, that this is something that is directly connected to poverty, to generational trauma, to just the system of injecting opioids into these communities, which is something that people are talking about a lot more now, thankfully, but it became important to me to give a face and show that face being someone who can be redeemed and not someone who's just a portrait of that people can use for political gain or to dismiss a community in general. It's difficult to not mention uh, Ohio and Appalachia without J.D. Vance coming into the picture at some point. How do you feel like this book as the conversation from Hillbilly Elegy? My title is so similar. So I thought I, I didn't think about Hillbilly Elegy when um, I made the title Hillbilly Madonna, which is, might be funny to, to hear, but um I mean, J.D. Vance and I have very similar stories. We have very, you know, we both grew up as the children of relocated Appalachians, spent time of our summers back in our our, um, family's hometown. I even have a grandma that I call Meemaw who threatens to shoot people. You know, (laughs) we have similar upbringings, but I think the difference for me is, you know, his book is called Hillbilly Elegy. That's dead, you know, and he clearly wrote this book as we can see now, for political purposes, as a stepping stone in his own political career. And he's not just telling his story, he's explaining for all of the rest of the country exactly what these people are, without really having lived there much, you know, and without... I think pretty much everyone who comes from the places that he's describing is says that's not who I am. So what my book, I did not want to speak for a community. I wanted to speak my story and my understanding of the women that I know and myself and, and just tell the story to say, okay, here's a little, this is what you think women are like in this community. Here's an example of how that might be different, you know, that it's not beyond redemption. Nobody's dead here. This is something that that can be overcome. But also, I don't I don't have a desire to uh, use that to get power, you know. And I think that's where he's coming from. Is I'm going to use all this information so that I can put myself in a position of power as an authority and expert. And I don't I don't think that hillbillies or Appalachia at all is just a homogenized thing that you can easily explain in one book. So yeah, I have friends who say, oh, he is he who sh- must not be named. Yeah, he ha- he's he's dominated what people think of Ohio and Northern Kentucky Appalachia in general. The book is Hillbilly Madonna by Sarah Moore Wagner. Sarah, thank you very much. Thank you. Hillbilly Madonna is published by Driftwood Press. Wagner is now at work on a book of poems about her mom and Annie Oakley. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Tim Bing, Tyler Childers, Paul Loomis, and Chris Stapleton. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.